At the heart of every crime, there's a lie. In order to do this job well, you're going to have to learn to lie. But you're going to have to remember who you're lying to and when to lie and when not to lie. But a lie is only powerful if you choose to believe it. It all came out. All the story came out. It turned out he had two wives and five fiancés. That he wasn't marrying women because he loved them. He was actively impregnating women to rip them off for money. Me being one of them. So why do we fall for it every time? My, my father told me at a young age, he, he, says, he says, Carl, the two easiest things to sell anybody, anything that'll improve their looks and anything that'll make them money. And that's what you want to sell. Pretend is a documentary podcast about people pretending to be someone else. I interview real con artists, snake oil salesmen, and former cult members. Anyone living a lie. Search for Pretend wherever you get your podcasts. This case has been a difficult case for me to put together for you all. I mean, all the cases we cover here on Stolen Lives are, but some test me more than others. And Daniel's story is one that is particularly heartbreaking, and his death, his murder, was brutal. You will find yourself asking, how did this happen? How is it in advanced societies such as ours, at communities and schools that should be protecting our children, they fall short time and time again? Leading one person involved in today's story, being quoted as saying Daniel was invisible at the heart of this case. Unquote. This episode will not be an easy listen, and those who find topics surrounding child abuse and neglect triggering, this may not be your episode. I will, as always, remain respectful to the victim and only provide as much detail as necessary. But in saying that, listener discretion is advised. This is Daniel's story. The little boy was regularly locked in his bedroom for days, denied food and held under a bath of cold water until he was unconscious by his mother and her partner. Magdalena Wuschak and Marias Kreselek were both violent alcoholics. The police were called to the house 27 times and they were the subject of four social work assessments. But none of these professionals, it seemed, bothered to speak to Daniel himself. It was as if he was invisible. Daniel Pelka was born July 15, 2007, to mother Magdalena Luxak and Eric Pelka. Luxak and Eric had only immigrated to the United Kingdom from Poland a year earlier, looking for more opportunities for themselves and a more stable childhood for their future children. Within the next year, the young family would move several times around the West Midlands County. It seemed that each house was not grand enough or large enough for Luxak. This impatience with what she had in life, it carried over to her relationship. And only a year after Daniel was born, Eric discovered Luxak was having an affair and he ended the relationship. Heartbroken, Eric returned to Poland to be surrounded and supported by his family, whilst Daniel remained in the United Kingdom with his mother. According to Eric, Luxak made it very difficult for him to have contact with his son after this point. I guess being in an entire different country wouldn't have helped and made it more difficult on its own. Not pointing any fingers here. But the situation alone would have made custody arrangements that much more difficult. Especially given both Luxak and Eric were unemployed, 
and money would have been tight. Regardless what was going on with his parents, Daniel was initially a very happy and healthy little boy. He was reaching all his milestones and gaining weight. He was walking and talking and active. Everything you would hope your child to be. December 2009. 27-year-old Luxak met 33-year-old Marius Krizalik. Krizalik was also a Polish immigrant and had moved to the United Kingdom in 2005. Unfortunately, he had several run-ins with the law, racking up a string of driving offences that resulted in two short stints in prison. But when Luxak met Kreselik, he had literally just ended his own relationship. And I mean literally, because just a few hours before, he had split with his girlfriend after he found her in bed with another man. Luxak and Kreselik became serious very fast, and only weeks after they first met, the pair moved in together into a three-bedroom rented home in the town of Coventry. It appeared this new relationship was troubled right from the get-go. In the two-year period between Luxak and Kreselik cohabitating and Daniel's murder, the police were called to the family home a total of 26 times, many involving domestic violence and alcohol abuse. In one particular incident, Kreselik choked Luxak into unconsciousness and cut her with a knife. But like with all the other incidents, Luxak refused to press charges against her partner. She excused away his behaviour, saying he only acted that way because he was drunk. And it seemed that alcohol and drugs were a problem in the household. Luxak and Kreselik would drink heavily together. They would also take a lot of drugs, cannabis and methamphetamines in particular. And on top of all this alcohol, it led to a very toxic, very dysfunctional and very dangerous environment, both for each other as well as for anyone else in the household. It was also alleged that Kreselik took a particular dislike to Daniel instantly. He would berate the toddler, calling him retarded and autistic. In 2011, Luxak would front to hospital with three-year-old Daniel He had a broken arm, which was sustained 12 hours earlier. The pain that baby would have been in for those 12 hours, it would have been agonising. During this hospital visit, a nurse would notice he had several bruises on his arm, left shoulder and lower stomach. Police and child services were contacted. Luxak would tell them that Daniel sustained these injuries after he slid off the back of the sofa onto the floor. And this story made sense to the doctors and were consistent with his injuries. So because of all of that, Daniel's broken arm and his bruises weren't investigated further. No charges were made and the case was considered closed. Even given with what's to come, the police still believe the right decision was made at that time. But this just marked the beginning of the abuses against little Daniel. The couple carried out a campaign of cruelty... While his siblings were well treated, Daniel was locked in a room just a few feet wide. This door was covered in his tiny fingerprints. The handle had been removed so he couldn't escape. There was no furniture other than some threadbare carpet and a very thin mattress which was heavily urine stained. It was pretty bleak and it must have been a terrible existence. And we know that he spent a lot of time in that room. Daniel was regularly subjected to a series of punishments. He was forced to kneel down in a corner for up to 20 minutes or made to do squats repeatedly and he was force-fed salt, all because he was hungry and had taken some food. 
The abuse against Daniel escalated after the broken arm incident. Daniel would be frequently locked in his bedroom. And when I say bedroom, sometimes when someone can't afford, it isn't much. Many children have to share a small bedroom, but this just wasn't a small bedroom. It was more of a box-sized room. There was nothing to show this was a bedroom of a four-year-old either. There were no toys. There were no photos on the wall. No furniture. Nothing like you picture a little boy's room to be. There was no heating to this room. And anyone who has been to England or lives in England in the dead of winter, you know their winters are fairly harsh. And the winter before Daniel's murder was no exception. All that was in this box room was threadbare carpet which was heavily urine-stained and a very thin and worn mattress on the floor. A mattress that Daniel was forced to soil himself because he would be locked in this room. Kreselik removed the internal handle so Daniel could not let himself out. He would then go on to remove the external handle as well so Daniel's siblings couldn't let him out either. Heartbreakingly, police officers would later find scratches on the inside of the door where Daniel was searching for his escape. What Daniel must have been thinking and feeling during those last few months of his life, not understanding why this was happening to him, not really understanding what he was being punished for. He would have been hungry and lonely and desperate for love and attention. A neighbour would later come forward to say she would often hear a child screaming coming from that home in the middle of the night. At that point, she just assumed someone was having nightmares. If only she had called the police or child protective services, maybe Daniel would still be alive today and living with another family who would have absolutely adored him, or maybe even his father who missed his son terribly. We are all responsible for this. If we see or hear something that isn't quite right, it is always worth making that phone call. Most times it'll be absolutely nothing. But then there will be times where it may bring attention to a case of a child hurting and in need of help. Lakazak and Kreselik would then start withholding food from Daniel, only allowing him half a sandwich a day. His siblings would do all they could to protect their brother, often asking for extra food to give Daniel. Quote, I had my money. I got it from the bank. I found a card on the floor. I used to go to the shop and buy things for him so they couldn't see. I had to make food for him. I had to clean him up. Unquote. Unfortunately, though, if Daniel was caught with more food than his half a sandwich ration, he would face further cruel punishments. He would be subjected to regular beatings. He would be force-fed salt until he vomited. Text messages between Kreselik and Luxak confirmed that on one occasion, Daniel's head was held under cold water until he fell unconscious. The starvation becoming so severe for the little boy that Daniel's bones stopped growing. His body trying to reserve as much of the calories as possible to keep his tiny organs functioning. September 2011, Daniel started kindergarten at the Little Heath Primary School, just after his fourth birthday. Initially, teachers would describe Daniel as a happy little boy who interacted well with his classmates and met a lot of friends, despite English not being his first language. Unfortunately, two months after he started school, his teachers would notice Daniel rapidly losing weight. The assistant teacher would later describe Daniel as being a bag of bones. 
The school nurse was so concerned for Daniel's welfare that a home visit was arranged. She gave Luckzak a referral to a paediatrician and offered her a package of support, but Luckzak would never follow through with any of these recommended appointments. The school also spoke to Luckzak about Daniel's obsession with food. They told her that Daniel was stealing sandwiches from other classmates' lunchboxes, that he would dig through bins for half-eaten apples. On one occasion, Daniel had eaten half a cake that was for the teacher's birthday. Luckzak appeared concerned about this, but she had a reason for all of it. Luckzak claimed Daniel was special needs and had learning difficulties that were genetic and inherited from his father that Daniel had a rare eating disorder, that Daniel wasn't to eat more than what was in his lunchbox because he would binge and then vomit later at home. However, what we know now, there is absolutely no evidence this was the case. It is believed Luxac made up this story to conceal the fact Daniel was being starved and abused. Text messages between Luxac and Kreselik only confirmed the abuse of, quote, premeditated, prolonged cruelty, and a significant element of teamwork, unquote. Text messages that read Luckzak, quote, We will deal with Daniel after school. He won't see grub at all, unquote. And Kreselik, quote, Take him to the room and lock him in there. You'll have some peace, unquote. December 2011, Luckzak received a letter from Daniel's school regarding his attendance, which was about 60% at this point. An education welfare officer made a home visit with a translator to ensure their message was completely understood and received. Daniel was present for this visit, along with his siblings. And although the education welfare officer wrote in her report the children were well enough for school, Luckzak still refused to send them back to school that week. March 1st, 2012. A teacher found Daniel taking a discarded piece of fruit from the garbage bin. Even though it was clear Daniel was starving, the teacher abided by his mother's wishes. She did not let him eat it nor give the upset little boy any other food. The teacher called Luckzak to inform her what happened. Luckzak did not seem surprised at the revelation. She would tell Daniel's teacher that he had been stealing food from the fridge at home as well, that he had been eating excessively every night. Even in hearing this, the teacher felt like something wasn't quite right. It was evident that Daniel was visibly underweight. But nothing further was done and Luxac would pick Daniel up after school as per the normal routine. When Daniel and Luxac returned home, Krizalik had already returned home as well from his job as a factory worker. Maybe knowing what's coming. Maybe it was just his little body not being able to function like it should anymore. Maybe it was just Daniel being a normal four-year-old and toileting accidents are still going to happen. But Daniel wet himself. Kreselik, who was already enraged that Luckzak was called from the school about Daniel stealing food again, he gave Daniel one final beating. He knocked Daniel to the ground by punching him on the back of the head, rendering Daniel unconscious. That simply wasn't enough for Kreselik. He picked Daniel up and took him into his dark and dismal box bedroom and continued to beat him. I cannot help but have this visual. Daniel tiny and unconscious. At this point, he only weighed 22 pounds or 10 kilograms, the average weight of an 18-month-old baby. 
In comparison, a healthy four-year-old should weigh 40 pounds or 18 kilograms, almost double. His unconscious body would have been flopping around like a rag doll, completely powerless to protect itself from the relentless beating it was enduring. Daniel would never wake up, and he would fall into a coma. Instead of calling 999 and the paramedics for help, Luckzak and Kreselik would then start their nightly routine of drinking copious amounts of liquor until they passed out. The following day, March 2nd, 2012, Luckzak googled care patient in coma and salt poisoning. She would send Kreselik a text message asking him what she should do because Daniel would not wake up. His reply was that Daniel would, quote, get over it, unquote and he ordered Luckzak not to call for an ambulance because it would, quote, cause proper problems, unquote. That same day, Daniel's teachers would call his home, wondering why he was again absent without explanation. They were rightly concerned, but Luckzak never answered their call and never returned their messages. All right, what's the problem there? What's happening? Oh, listen, my son, my son, he, he stopped breathing. He got four years, yeah. And I, and we wake up and he stopped, he stopped, he stopped breathing. He sent me. Okay, what's he, do, what's he doing now? Is he breathing? <laughs> no, he's not breathing. Nothing. It wouldn't be until two days later, on March 3rd, 2012, that Luckzak would finally call 999 for an ambulance. She would tell the 999 operator that her son was no longer breathing. She claimed Daniel had been complaining of chest pains, but it was all far too late. Daniel was pronounced dead half an hour after reaching the hospital at 3.50pm. Daniel Pelka was only four years old. Daniel's autopsy would reveal a total of 22 different types of injuries covering his emaciated body. A body that the medical examiner would write in their report resembled a concentration camp victim or a terminal cancer patient. Ten of Daniel's injuries were deemed to be severe and life-threatening and were to his head. His cause of death was determined to be a fatal brain injury. Luckzak would visit Daniel's school requesting to speak to the head teacher. She told him that Daniel had died. According to her, it was a result of heart failure which we know from Daniel's autopsy, this was a lie, again trying to clear herself from all suspicion of involvement. It wouldn't make a difference, though. Police turned to the last two people to be with Daniel at the time of his death, and they were quickly arrested for his murder. Infuriatingly, the family home was found to be full of food and fresh fruit. Poverty would not be acceptable as a defence for not feeding Daniel. There was more than enough food for everyone. No excuse for only giving Daniel a measly half a sandwich a day when the house was overflowing with food, and we know there was always money for alcohol and drugs. Both Luckzak and Kreselik were quick to blame each other for being responsible, neither showing any semblance of remorse for what had happened. But while they each denied being the one involved in causing Daniel's death, what they did admit to was the offence of child cruelty. This footage shows him in a school corridor. Teachers saw him eating leftovers from the bins and taking food from other children's lunchboxes. The couple's text messages helped convict them. Wushak once wrote, Well, now he's temporarily unconscious because I nearly drowned him. Throughout the trial, they blamed one another for Daniel's murder. 
will probably never know who inflicted the fatal blow or why this little boy was so cruelly treated. But both of them will now face justice for his death. Magdalena Luxak and Marius Krizalik would face trial separately at the Birmingham Crown Court in July of 2013. During her trial, Luxak claimed it was Krizalik who would be the perpetrator for the violence upon Daniel, that if she tried to intervene, he would rape or strangle her, that it was Krizalik that wouldn't allow Daniel any food. Alternatively, Krizalik denied ever beating Daniel that he did nothing but smack the boy on his hands and bottom only, although he claimed Luxak had asked him to make Daniel kneel down for up to 20 minutes at a time as punishment for stealing food at school and bad behaviour. Said Krizalik to the jury, quote, I was stupid and listened to Magda, unquote. The evidence against the couple was undeniable. Between December 2011 and February 2012, On the few times Daniel did attend school, he would be covered in injuries. Many of these injuries were to his face. But for reasons that are never explained but highlight what I said in the summary opener, Daniel was truly an invisible child. But the school never reported these injuries to authorities or even record these injuries on his school record, despite the fact these injuries were extremely noticeable and severe. But these injuries included four bruises down the neck to the shoulder, black eyes, scratches across his nose, a bruise to the centre of his forehead, a large bump on the left side of his forehead, a graze to his forehead, lumps on Daniel's head, finger marks around his throat. One of Daniel's teachers, Amy Tockley, broke down in tears in her testimony to the court. She recalled an incident where she saw Daniel eating a pancake from the garbage bin. It was covered in grit and debris. That the once friendly, outgoing child stopped interacting with other students and would spend his recess and lunch breaks sitting alone. August 2013. Luxak and Kreselik were both found guilty for Daniel's murder. They were sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in prison. Not near enough in my opinion. In handing down her sentence, Judge Laura Cox said the sentence was fitting due to the, quote, unimaginable acts of cruelty and brutality, unquote. In his victim impact statement, Eric Pelka said that even though he had not seen his son in three years, he never, in the darkest realms of his mind, ever could imagine he'd be burying his only son, quote, I could not believe they could do something like that to my son, make him starve and I feel anger. I just hate them, unquote. The report into the death of four-year-old Daniel Pelka shows that dozens of chances to intervene as he was tortured and starved by his mother and her partner were missed. Few of those who came into contact with him thought to raise concerns about his health and welfare. Worse, no professional tried hard enough to speak directly to the child in the months before his death. But whilst the report details the failings of agencies to protect another vulnerable child, It doesn't blame anyone either. So does it make any difference? In a press conference following the sentencing of Luxak and Kreselik, Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg would be quoted as saying, Daniel's death should be on all of our consciousness, unquote. And honestly, he could not be more correct. So many people saw what was happening to Daniel. Police, the school, the health department, child protective services, the education department, hospitals, doctors, I could go on and on. 
but not one person did anything to remove Daniel from his eventful fate. They basically all signed his death certificate by allowing him to continue to appear abused and starved. Starved to the point that his body was giving out and could no longer grow. A serious case review would be ordered by the Coventry Safeguarding Children Board, and it would find the obvious that there were so many chances missed that would have saved Daniel. They found excuses by luck Zach were accepted at face value that Daniel's voice was not heard because English was not his first language. But then on the other side of this, there was no record of anyone even attempting to hold a conversation with Daniel about his home life. That because of this, there were too many missed chances for an intervention. But Daniel was not confident enough in himself or his English to speak up about this on his own, to initiate these conversations on his own about the abuse. And why should he have been the one to initiate it? Remember, Daniel was only four years old. The report determined that Conventry, the town where Daniel lived with his mother and stepfather, had the lowest numbers of health visits per child in the United Kingdom. That this report promised the number of health visits would immediately double, and within two years it would treble. Has this happened? It is clear from my research that home visits from health departments and support advocacy services have increased, to around the 200% mark of where they were at the time of Daniel's murder. But I couldn't find any evidence that the ultimate goal of 300% was achieved at the time of this recording, nine years after the death of Daniel Pelka. The board's chair, Amy Weir, found the report, quote, "...disheartening, disappointing and worrying," unquote and that the idea of Daniel being, quote, invisible was at the heart of this case, unquote. July 14, 2015. Magdalena Luckzak was found unresponsive in her cell. She would be pronounced dead that evening. An inquiry into her death in custody three days later would reveal that she had hanged herself the day before would have been Daniel's eighth birthday. Six months later, on January 27, 2016, Marius Kreselik was also found dead in his prison cell. His cause of death was due to a heart attack. During his last days, Kreselik was offered medical attention, which he refused. Poor Thing was afraid that people would recognise him and the backlash he would receive from that. The struggle is real, people. Due to the nature of Daniel's death and the events surrounding his neglect and abuse at the hands of his mother, it would be quickly determined that Daniel's body should be rightly returned to his biological father, Eric, who had not been able or allowed to see his son for three years at this point. But unfortunately, the costs of flying Daniel's body over to Poland were beyond his means. And if this story could be any more heartbreaking... Daniel's body would remain in the hospital's morgue for more than 18 months, while other arrangements could be ordered. But there is some humanity left in this broken excuse of a world. A Polish family-owned funeral firm based in London came forward after hearing Eric's plight, and they donated the money, not only to fly Daniel back to Poland, but they also covered the total of the funeral costs. And on September 3rd, 2013, Daniel's body was finally laid to rest. Most heartbreaking of everything, this would be the first time for the great majority of his short life that Daniel was safe and free from abuse and hatred. 
Rest peacefully, Daniel. I, we, will never forget you. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen, or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.